Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to the latest episode and final episode in fact of 2019. Uh, I'm one of your co-hosts Paul Anderson here with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, tell the lucky listeners what we're doing this week. Well man, uh, I'm going to take for granted that you wanted to ask me how I am so I will say I am fantastic. (laughs) I'm uh, caffeinated, uh, fittingly caffeinated for a show of this kind because what we're going to do today is round 2019 off with our long-awaited countdown of the 10 best films of the year. We've already done the decade that episode is available now go back and find it if you haven't listened to it yet but this one is really a capstone on 2019 as a year in film all of our 10 favorite films the standout films from both Paul's side and my side of this conversation but in addition to that Paul we always do something else when we do these top 10 of the year countdown end of year shows Um, the other side's a little bit more negative we're also going to count down our top five or I should say really bottom five films of the year as in the worst of the worst the absolute direct of 2019 and we're going to front load the show with that part so that we'll get the negativity out of the way and then we'll move on to our countdown of 10 through 6 and finally 5 through 1 so that the show is going to get increasingly positive as we go through or at least that is the design that is the idea uh, how are you <laughs> yeah. feeling coming into this one man uh, I'm I'm excited to get into this one. Films of the decade was I think films of the decade was tougher than putting this list together. So I think I've had some good prep in in preparing for it. Um, that being said, yeah, the the worst films of the year was an interesting one. Um, I think there's been a lot of average films this year, but not as many outright terrible ones. So I was struggling what to put in in my top five in my bottom five, shall we say? Uh, top ten, I found it quite easy to lock down the top three i would say and then it was the the other seven i found a bit more i found a bit trickier um we're also going to run over some films before we start a list of films that we perhaps both of us should have seen and may have made our list but we haven't got to yet so we're going to mention those briefly um but yeah excited to be yeah and with the best one in the world man i mean it's impossible isn't it realistically with you know lives and jobs and all sorts of things going on to actually see everything that might be in contention so we hold our hands up to the fact that we haven't seen absolutely everything but i think you know we've gone above and beyond the average uh, viewer maybe in trying to cram everything in it's to such an extent paul that in the last three or four days i have watched a number of films that are certainly in contention for my list this year so uh, i'm excited to talk about those and everything else and you know let's bring some energy to the first part of the show which is the five worst films of 2019 <laughs> are you are you ready to go to that dark place I am ready to go to the. I am ready to go to the dark place for sure. So I'm going to roll straight in uh, with my fifth worst film of 2019. This could have been any number of films at number five, to be honest. But this one piqued my interest. Um, Hellboy, uh, directed by Neil Marshall. Um, it, uh, the more I'm, I'm commonly say on this show, I like things that take big swings and miss, and I'd rather things take a swing and try and do something a bit different and and it miss than it not try and do something a bit different at all. But none of this really worked for me, to be honest. The CGI is, is atrocious. David Harbour's great, but the rest of the film is is not good uh, in the slightest. The CGI is atrocious. The performances from pretty much everyone apart from David Harbour are beyond uh, appalling. And the film just... 
I feel for Neil Marshall because I don't think it was his fault because there's some rumour there was seven producers on this thing and the, one of the producers fired Neil Marshall's DOP midway through filming. It just it was it was a disaster from the start and unfortunately I'm not and I won't blame the director here but Hellboy was hell to sit through. And there we yeah, go. that's crazy because <laughs> that's one that I haven't caught up with yet. But you know Hellboy is somewhat interesting to me, I guess. But Neil Marshall is is Neil the Descent Marshall, right? A director we've both enjoyed a great deal in the past. So. A real blot on his copybook to be in the uh, bottom five of the year but I have to catch up with that one as soon as I can uh, or or maybe not so Paul when we come to this list you know I'm so used to saying like oh I haven't seen that I've got to watch it but if it's your number five worst film of the year um, maybe you know my priority should be elsewhere I there's other films I know you haven't seen this year that you should watch ahead of Hellboy so totally <laughs> fair, very fair um, okay number five on my list is a film that having seen this Paul I remember talking to you and saying this is going to be my number one in the worst film of the year countdown and it's actually slipped all the way to number five this is one of my least favorite working directors Jason Reitman and the film The Front Runner that released very very <laughs> early in the year um, 11th of January it says here uh, I don't know what I I can say that I didn't say in the original review but like Jason Reitman is this director who you might think you know things pop into your mind like Juno for example as an example of a Jason Reitman helmed movie that did relatively well and as a bit of a, an indie hit I guess um that movie is dependent on your opinion either wildly irritating or um, quite enjoyable but I think either way that you swing that's down to Diablo Cody more than it is down to Jason Reitman more recently we've had things like Men, Women and Children which is the most excruciating like you know you know, everybody now is saying like okay boomer to everything on the internet as a way of signalling that an older yeah, person who's yeah. out of touch <laughs> has said something I mean that movie could just be summarised as okay boomer uh, this one the front runner is just this kind of like <laughs> Nuts and bolts, uh, political thriller of kinds about uh, a presidential campaign, but there are absolutely no thrills. It's plodding. Hugh Jackman has this weird hairpiece on. It feels really uncomfortable. And I just found it dreary and, and unengaging and uninteresting on a level that I honestly couldn't have expected even from Jason Reitman and I just found myself those rare movies where you start looking up at the ceiling in the cinema and feeling a sort of rising anger <laughs> and that's what I felt about this even though it's this kind of innocuous thing that just sort of hangs around like a medium strength fart for a little while and then dissipates but yeah the front runner's terrible and it's number five and to be honest I feel like I've been pretty generous only putting it at number five what have you got at number four man? <laughs> Uh, I've got Polar at number four, which I think was a Netflix release from early in the year, starring Mads Mikkelsen, uh, directed by Jonas Ackerland. Um, this basically for me was Incel the movie, um, and I'm leaving it at that. That's my number four. It just it was it was juvenile in the wrong ways. It was violent in the wrong ways. It was it, it was a hateful, over directed, over edited, nasty piece of work that was just not entertaining at all. And regular listeners know I don't have a problem with violence. But it just wasn't used well here. As I said, Incel the movie, I think sums this one up for me. It's a nasty piece of work. It was a nasty little movie for nasty little people. There we go. <laughs> Polar, not to be mistaken for Arctic, which came out this year as well, which is actually relatively good. 
Um, I just caught up with that okay. one in the last couple of weeks. Um, number four for me then is another one. It fits into the same bracket as the front runner, honestly, because it deals with uh, political machinations and the corridors of power, but it does so in a way that makes you angry, or at least made me very angry. And it's another one of my least favourite working directors, I would say. Uh, this one from Adam McKay as writer-director It is Vice. Adam McKay has like uh, sort of forged his own furrow of sort of both um, clever, clever and incredibly patronising screenplays that have been brought to life in the last few years. And and I've just lost patience. I thought Vice was contemptuous towards its audience. I think it treats the audience like idiots. And I think Adam McKay's incredibly pleased with himself in a way that it's just kind of noxious and difficult to spend time around. This thing runs over two hours. Have you seen it, Vice? I have. I, I really enjoyed it. I had this. This. This is one of the most divisive films I think I've seen on critical circuits for a while. I really liked Vice. I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I, I. It's one of those, man. It got under my skin. I took against it. Yeah, there are these, you know, performances here. Christian Bale wore a fat suit. Congratulations. There are a lot of people involved in the making of the movie that I like, and I wanted to like it. I just can't stand the way Adam McKay makes films. I can't stand it. Um, and I think it's so over-stylized and, yeah, just pl- just pleased with itself. Um, if the first movie is like a, you know, medium-strength fart that quickly dissipates, this movie is like somebody who farts, knows they farted, and sits there and just breathes it in because that is their happy place. Uh, yeah, not, not a fan. That's my number. Okay. Uh, four. What have you got at three on the list, Paul? I'm looking forward to the next three fart analogies now. So you've you've raised your. You've, 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 <laughs> I, sh- I should leave that alone now. You've put maybe a little fart in the sand, just you know, just to see where we go with it. Um, yeah, Pet Cemetery, my number three. Um, just a, such a promising, well-made trailer, just developed into just, just such a flat, 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 boring horror film that made some changes to the book that made very little sense. And just it just went nowhere fast. I just it's one of those it's, hor- it's just one of those horror films that just felt like it was it was rolled just rolled out of a they they'd literally just gone oh here you go matey in the street um here direct this like you know what you know what you know what a bankable horror film is let's make this it just considering the source material is one of my favorite Stephen King books and I think it's great um and the original film version isn't great but it's much better than this one this was a massive missed opp- massive missed opportunity for me here and the whole thing was just boring and if horror is boring it's gone very 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 wrong and for me pet cemetery it you know should be buried in a cemetery alongside the director's pets <laughs> there we go uh yeah pet cemetery just boring 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 <laughs> yeah definitely not as divisive as vice paul but i i didn't particularly like that movie and i, and I agree with you it's pretty boring i think the only thing that i remember about it in a sort of really positive sense is uh, my hair standing up on end because they had that sequence where the cat returns and the cat has obviously been uh, reformed in a sort of evil version of its former self and just someone who li- as someone who lives with their cat that got got under my skin a little bit but yeah, yeah not they didn't do anything with it so i think it's rightfully there um talking of boring though man number three for me is a comedy that went just above and beyond the call of duty in making sure that absolutely nothing involved was funny this one is the hustle did you see the hustle paul no i don't think i've seen the hustle is this with who's in this remind me is this Anne Hathaway? Is this the remake of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? It is, yeah. It's yes. unbelievably, somewhat unbelievably directed by Chris Addison of, you know, uh, In the Loop and the thick yeah. of it. 
so shame on him. This is Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson. Uh, yeah, as a pair of dirty rotten scoundrels, if you will, who uh, want to perform sort of go about performing sort of confident scams on unsuspecting men. But the chemistry between the two of them is completely off or not there. I mean, they did press junket stuff for it and tried to give the impression that they were now, you know, fast friends. I don't buy it because it's so <laughs> difficult to... Well, we've said before, Paul, it's so difficult to make a comedy movie genuinely funny. And I think people undervalue comedy at the cinema and, you know, home cinema as well. But then at the same time, to make a comedy so completely devoid of humour is a real achievement. So for that, Chris Addison's got to be... Lauded along with you know the writing team involved in this a uh, couple of writers there but yeah I just I like Anne Hathaway in the right w- role I can stand Rebel Wilson in in things but together oh man I just I just wanted it to finish and then and then eventually it did and it was only an hour and a half long uh, what's number two for you uh, number two for me was the film that I remember coming out of thinking I never want to watch another film ever again. Uh, and that's thanks to director John Crowley, who put together The Goldfinch, um, which has been d- deservedly critically derided. Um, I imagine the source ma- I hear the source material is very good, um, but this film is not. Um, Ansel Elgort tries his hardest, bless him, with just just, just, uh, just a really badly paced two and a half hour film that... I think perhaps in the right hands could have been entertaining, but this just feels like a trudge through everything wrong with with cinema, really. And you, you talk about being bored and looking up at the ceiling. My God, was I looking up at the ceiling during the Goldfinch? There's just there's just so little about it that is remotely interesting. The plot the plot seems to there's times when the plot jumps ahead very very quickly, and you're like, okay, I wanted to see more of that. There's bits of the film where you just like the bits of the film you want to see more of are rushed through. The bits of the film that definitely you don't need to spend as much time with. I mean, it this film felt like it was seven or eight hours long in in parts. Like the bits that you don't need rushing are rushed, and just the pacing is all over the shop. And I, I talk a lot about pacing in reviews, and for me, pacing is a very important thing to a successful film. It has to be to keep you interested. And the Goldfinch, the pacing is off. The story is is just too. There's not enough story here. Uh, there might be in the book there isn't in this film to, to make this worth your time and it was such a slog to get through and you know I'd rather a film be I'd rather a film be bad than it be boring um, so yeah The Goldfinch I'd, I'd really really struggle through this one really struggle through it and wasn't this all with the with the fact that didn't Johnny did Johnny Greenwood score this or am I making that up I might I be think that John, up. he may have done actually yeah yeah I think yeah. He, yeah I think he possibly did to be fair but yeah there's just just doesn't work. It doesn't yeah, work on many, many levels. Like you were saying, it's all sort of structurally cut up as well in a, in a way that just becomes really great. Did you, did you watch it in the end? Yeah, yeah, I saw it at the cinema. Yeah. Um, number six for me, Paul. Uh, number six for me, excuse me. I've mixed up my numbers. It's number two. And the reason I've said number six is because, <laughs> I think Paul, I know what's coming. <laughs> it's Six Underground. It's your boy Michael Bay. He's got all the money in the world and he's got Netflix. He can do whatever he wants for over two hours. This movie feels like about six hours. And it's all effing of the frame uh, turned up to 11 kill stuff in entertaining ways uh, objectify women in ways that you find incredibly entertaining uh, you know kill stuff while objectifying women uh, you can do that you can do those things in in different combinations his his party pieces and yeah for all of the goodwill that you might have for like uh, Ryan Reynolds in Deadpool for example he's reprising that role here in a movie that isn't you know a tenth as good and I'm not even a huge fan of Deadpool 
Liverpool. Um, yeah, we reviewed this a couple of weeks ago, so I don't want to retread everything that I said there. Did this make your list? Uh, it's my number one worst film of the year, Pete. Uh, six, oh, six underground. we'll take the bat on and what carry a surprise. on. Um, it's just a hateful piece of work, to be to be perfectly honest. It's, as you say, it's misogynistic. Uh, you brought up rightfully in our in our supposedly popcorn review where we just tore into it a few episodes ago. The shameless, shameless product placement that's on display here. Um, the uh, I just honestly I had a headache. I mean, if it would make a great demo footage for a 4K television because it's very colourful, but not even that, not in a good way. Just just super bright, super garish. Just everything. It, it's literally. If you want to know what I don't like about Michael Bay films, I mean, I thought Transformers was the nadir of his career. That's I thought that's the lowest he could go. But no, he's somehow gone lower and made worse with Six Underground. I cannot say how much I hated it enough. Like, and I and I really hated the Goldfinch. I thought the Goldfinch was a lock in for me until I sat down, ready to enjoy myself in front of Netflix, and Six Underground offended my eyes. So yeah, Six Underground, an, an appalling film. And on every level <laughs> yeah i mean um pe- pain and gain is a, a comparative masterpiece yes when put next to a six underground it is so it's not just bad and it's not just boring it and and like you quite rightly said it's hateful it's also just irritating in a way that is very specific i think once you've had a bit of experience with this particular director and then all of the ish similar directors who've sort of sprung up in the wake of Michael Bay that it just kind of irritates you not Mm. only in the content but in the form the way things are presented to you makes you feel like I'm glad this decade is over and hopefully we do a better job in the next decade and that's quite some achievement for just you know a couple of hours on Netflix so well done Mr Bay um number one for me do you know what I'm gonna say I don't actually. I'm I'm intrigued now. I slapped it around on this show already, and I was pretty sure once I'd seen it that it wasn't going to be topped. Uh, this one is whatever you would call what Sam Taylor Johnson did with the source material, a million little pieces. Um, a million little pieces is something that kind of has to be seen to be believed, and I think that to explain why it's number one on my worst of the year, you have to put it in context of the fact that like you have this James Fry source memoir a million little pieces which was famously sort of semi-debunked and then uh, Oprah Winfrey went back on her recommendation once she learned that James Fry perhaps had fabricated aspects of his story of recovery from drug dependency so what you have there in what I've just said is the makings of I think a really interesting human story about the limits of truth-telling and how people try to capitalize on opportunities through bending the truth or just telling straight lies but what you've got instead here is that Sam Taylor Johnson along with Aaron Taylor Johnson who takes the lead role her partner uh, is a story that just acts as if it is a sort of um, biblical level text a million little pieces all contents are are true verbatim and so what we've got is this kind of weird third rate kind of uh, girl interrupted i guess about drug dependency recovery including a sequence and i shit you not in which two characters are having a somber conversation about the struggles of getting clean and in the background in another room very clearly intended to be the background score for that particular scene is the track everybody hurts by rem 
if we were doing worst scenes of the year, that would get in there. Because it just, I think I laughed out loud when that happened. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know what possessed them to make this from that. I guess there's been some kind of friendship that's developed between James Fry and this pair of, you know, an actor and a filmmaker in in, in uh, Aaron Taylor-Johnson and, and Sam Taylor-Johnson. But at one point, Aaron Taylor-Johnson has a fight with a sapling. And like, <laughs> this is supposed to be a powerful moment, but again, it's just accidentally funny <laughs> because this stuff rings so hollow and it rings so like... It's so much the sense that Sam Taylor Johnson is reaching for something artistic and something overly meaningful from what she's got here in, you know, a story that, like I said at the beginning, is, is fundamentally based on half-truths. So, yeah, the full truth is A Million Little Pieces is a disaster. And how it is 45 on Metacritic right now, I, I do not know. I think some people are, are very easily pleased um, because, yeah, ridiculous, what a ridiculous film. That's my number one. Well, you've made me want to watch that now, to be fair. I meant to pick it I meant to pick it up the other day. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, as you, from the sound of that, just, yeah, just terribly heavy-handed and woefully put together, which is, as you say, is a shame because the source material sounds pretty interesting. So I'm going to find that, to be honest, and, and see what we think. Maybe, maybe it'll come up on another show. It probably won't. <laughs> nice. Well, in that case, let's leave behind the little cesspool that we've just created of those 10 movies. In fact, nine movies, thanks to Michael Bay, made both lists. Uh, and we're going to move on to the positive stuff, which is going to be of course, our top 10 films of 2019. When we come back after the break, we will do exactly that countdown, but we will go with number 10 to number six right after this. I think before we start the list, I just wanted to throw in some films that I haven't got to yet that I would have liked to have got to and may, you know, may have been contenders for this list. Um, so from my perspective, I haven't managed to get to Little Women yet. Um, I'm very excited for Greta Gerwig's latest film. I'm very excited for all the young cast in it. I think it looks incredible uh, and I'm very excited to see it. I've just been very, very bogged down with work, so I haven't got to it. Um, the Farewell is another one that I know Pete I'd be surprised if it isn't sitting on your list somewhere Pete um, that's another film that I would have liked to have got to but um, I'm going to throw it in there and say actually I was making a film around the time The Farewell came out so I was very busy and what else was there Pete have you got any you wanted to throw into the mix yeah a few that I've seen quite high up on on sort of reputable lists that I haven't managed to get to for yeah similar reasons busyness or just availability and you know the usual suspects on that list, I've got Burning, um, which I believe is Korean. Ashes Purest White, uh, another foreign language film that I haven't got to. Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I know has got really great write-ups and I haven't got to that yet. Things like Knife and Heart. Again, I'm going all foreign language here. I feel like I've slacked on, on that end of things. Oh, Bait, Bait the, the British film about the Cornish fishing village is supposed to be incredible as well and I haven't got to that yet. Yeah, how I, I think I'm speaking for both of us, how neither of us have been attracted yet to the prospect of Matthias Schoenarts and horses in the Mustang, I don't know, but yeah. I still haven't <laughs> seen the Mustang. Any more border, I think you've seen, I haven't. Border non fiction. Was good. Border was really good, yeah, yeah non fiction, and uh, Francois Rose on one, and By the Grace of God, the Assayas uh, uh, movie. Monos, I haven't seen, which is a big miss, and For Summer. Oh, and Happy as Lazaro. So, like, a lot of foreign language films, honestly, and I think that doesn't mean there aren't any on my list but it does mean that maybe availability wise they've been a little bit more difficult over the last 
at least the last few months. So yeah, I'll pick up on them as soon as I possibly can into the new yeah, year. Yeah, absolutely. I'm in the, in the same boat as you, but I quite like the new year catch up when a lot of this stuff starts hitting home release because you can actually get to see it then. So yes, yes. But Paul, all bad feeling, all negative feeling is now gone because here we are in a celebration <laughs> of the films of the year and this is going to be 10 through 6. So like, make no mistake about it, anything that has made the top 10, I think you know, either speaker here is going to have found exceptional. Do you want to kick this off or do you want me to go first? It's totally up to you. Uh, I'll kick it off. That's all good. I'm happy, to, I'm happy to start. So with my number 10, we have this year's effort from one of my favourite working directors today, uh, Peter Strickland. Uh, this is In Fabric, which is the only film you will see this year about a haunted dress um, in, in short. This is an incredible, an incredibly beautiful piece of work, remarkably well shot and a delightful and joyous homage to the Giallo films um, from the past. What else is there to say about this? Yeah, you won't see another film like it this year. It, for me, is a brilliant blend of horror and comedy um, and is very, very funny in places as well as being very, very creepy with some truly beautiful Argento-inspired set pieces. Uh, Marianne Jean-Baptiste, I think, gives one of the most underappreciated performances of the year in, in one of the leads here. And yeah, it's just Peter Strickland's ability to make... His, he is an auteur like him or loathe him. He's certainly one of the most distinctive filmmakers working today and that's why one of the reasons In Fabric sits at my number 10. I just had an absolute blast with it and I really, really liked it and I would highly recommend anyone with a passing interest in, in cinema to give In Fabric a go for sure. Yeah, I mean, just when I've tried to exhaustively list all the films that I haven't got to that I feel like might have made the list, you've come up with a number <laughs> 10 that fits into the category Sorry. of films I haven't seen yet that could get into yeah. my list. Uh, and in fact, you know, to build on that, the fact that I so loved uh, what Strickland did with The Duke of Burgundy mm. makes me feel even worse that I haven't caught up with it yet. But there we go, you know, whatever. I'm not going to spend, you know, neither one of us need to spend our, all of our time worrying about what we haven't seen or done because what we have seen and what we have done is, you know, created this chart which for me is going to begin with my number 10 which I just refused to take out of the top 10 <laughs> so it's stuck around it is uh, ready or not ready or not this comedy horror mystery thrillery thing that just really took me by surprise I spoke about it when we did the uh, recent chart oh the uh, top five horrors of the year that's right yeah of course top five horrors of the year it came up there and I think it was my number one maybe it, yeah, it had to make this list somewhere. It has slipped down a little bit, I guess, in my estimation, as I've added more things or reassessed things that I'd already seen. However, the film does so many things right. The film knows so well the audience that it's playing to, and at every turn seemed to me to make great decisions about where to go with the story. All the way to the fact that when this thing can't really tie up its loose ends or wouldn't maybe would maybe be like faded out like many a, a sort of b-movie film might be just kind of comes to an end it doesn't go out with a whimper it literally makes all of the characters there uh come to a sticky end let's say uh without spoiling completely the end of ready or not and at the center of all this you have this performance from samara weaving who is i believe hugo weaving's niece I think. I think so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Samara Weaving, who is an actress I've seen here and there. She's in The Babysitter. She's in a couple of things. But the way that she embodies the character of a bride who's thrust into this kind of game of death where she has to just live through the night and then she can go on with her, her life. And she like embodies it with so much sort of vim and vigour and spunk. And like by the end of it, she's this character that would happily anchor a follow-up where she is the creation that has been forged by the events of this movie 
and it ends with just a a beautiful shot of her sat on the steps outside of this uh, stately home in which all the events and all of the bloodshed has taken place, drenched in blood and wearing a bride's dress and like yeah you, you had me at drenched in blood wearing a uh, bride's dress I, yeah. I loved ready or not and I, I couldn't take it out of the list just because i couldn't look at myself in the mirror if i had because i just enjoyed it so genuinely and like i without overthinking the thing i think it's possible when we make these lists to say like oh you know i feel like as we were saying when we did the decade list i feel like i should put this on here or like i'd be more credible if i put this on here nah fuck that ready or not number 10 for me what's at number nine for you paul uh number nine for me is a film i know you weren't a huge fan of in fact so i'd be interested to watch your face as you react to this um this was david michaud's the king that we reviewed not too long ago then the netflix netflix exclusive yeah i just thought it was as i mentioned at the time i think it was for me it was an act, absolute acting tour de force from timothy chalamet and joel egerton particularly joel egerton is what absolutely one of my favorite actors working today and i think he deserves a lot more credit he co-wrote this with david michaud i believe as well and just for me i found this film to be absolutely gripping from from start to finish i thought the battle scenes were were was superbly well done and yeah i just i just had a great time with it i just I sat down was gripped from start to finish uh, for all two hours 20 minutes of it if, if there's a if there is a main reason it's on my list it's because of the acting i think you, you whatever you say about the film i think the performances here are are incredibly powerful whether you think Chalamet's miscast as a, as a warrior or not is uh, is another matter but in terms of his performance I thought it was fantastic and yeah I just thought it was it was beautifully shot incredibly well put together and for me one of one of the year's underrated gems I think and that's why The King is at number nine. Nice well in The King uh, you have director David Michaud. David Michaud previously worked on a film called The Rover. The star of The Rover was Robert Pattinson. My number nine film is High Life, starring uh, Robert Pattinson. Good, good segue. I got there. Good segue. I like that. Considering you don't know what was on the list, that's impressive. <laughs> so we have uh, here the latest from director Claire Denis. I think it was last year or two years ago, maybe last year, when she'd made uh, Let the Sunshine In, and that made my 10 of the year. And here she is again this time taking on a subject that um, I just am really enamoured with in film which is uh, space and space exploration but Claire Denis isn't really so concerned with a sort of whiz-bang space adventure Uh, very far from it in fact what we've got is a, a kind of a kind of box floating through space where these people, young people um, for the most part, are essentially uh, captive sex machines who are there to reproduce and continue the possibilities for human life out in the galaxy and wherever that might lead. The film very much stares directly into the void and allows you to think quite deeply if you give it the time about what this might all mean, not just what the events of the film might mean, I think that's the the very beginning of that thought process, but like where we're going as as a race and, and what the future might be and how, if the future becomes untenable on the planet that we are currently living on, what plan we might have for, and what, not even what, just what plan, but what motivation we might have for continuing. I think it's pretty um, somber. It's pretty distressing if you dwell on it for a while. And the question that it poses at the end, if you, like me, read into it the thing that I read into it about the relationship between Patterson's character and his daughter um, as they look to the possible future, there's not been many more 
troubling, difficult, harrowing prospects or, or images, I think, in cinema in the whole of 2019. So Claire Denis is a very smart director and I like her very much. And so I'm basically there for whatever she does. At the same time, there are elements of High Life that maybe didn't grab me quite as um, quite as much as it, maybe even a film like uh, Let the Sunshine In, but they're so different. It's a bit churlish to make a comparison. I really liked it. And yeah, like I say, I'm here for whatever Claire Denis does next. And Rob Pattinson as well, you know, I should mention, has very um, sort of slowly but surely become, I think, one of the best working actors in at least his demographic and age group. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I can give you an easier link from The King to High Life as well. Robert Pattinson was in both. (laughs) Oh, that's absolutely true. I was thinking about Robert Pattinson when you were talking about it. And then I came up with my clever link rather than just saying yeah he's in both films (laughs) but you know we we got to to go a bit around the houses what have you got paul at number eight uh high life was was close to the top 10 for me actually but not quite there's some other films edited this year but no i'm I'm totally with you on what you said in high life if you haven't seen high life it's great i really really liked it it looks incredible it's incredibly well shot and yeah i'm totally with you on on anything claire denny does for sure so yeah i just wanted to throw that in as as honorable mention really uh number eight for me um is a film that came out much earlier in the year and i think was possibly number two or three in my top five in the middle of the year I might be mistaken. Pete's eagerly waiting to correct me if I'm if I'm not, uh, or if I am. Sorry. Uh, this is Destroyer from Karen Kusama, which is stars Nicole Kidman as a, a police detective who reconnects with people from an undercover assignment in her distant past um, in order to make peace with her demons. Um, I've read mixed things about this. It's one of those films that, for me, I just came out of it and I would I blew my little blew my little socks off I have to say I was I was gripped from start to finish I thought Nicole it was Nicole Kidman I haven't seen this good for years um the plot twists and turns um I didn't see any of the plot twists come in and I think some people did which may may have harmed this enjoyment some people's enjoyment of this film I didn't I roll I went with it I thought it was a thoroughly entertaining roller coaster and a very very effective thriller um and yeah I had I had a great time in the cinema with it and I haven't been uh, probably as gripped it's one of the most gripping films uh I've watched this year from start to finish so I really again much like you with with um ready or not like should 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 it be on the list would it be on other people's lists and you do kind of consider these things and i thought no i'm not going to consider those things i really really like destroyer i had a great time with it and it was absolutely one of my favorite cinema experiences of the year so it's in and it's at number eight yeah it was uh your number five mid-year okay destroyer so it slipped a little bit but you'd expect yeah. that because of the fact that obviously we've had six months worth of, of releases yeah. since then um, number eight for me is the follow-up to It Follows, in a sense, uh, in the sense that it is directed by David Robert Mitchell. This is Under the Silver Lake. Under the Silver Lake, when I talked about it on the mid-year list, uh, was a film that I said I think has a lot in common with both It Follows and The Myth of the American Sleepover, but I think the the latter of those two and the, the sort of former in terms of chronology is the real touchstone here. But instead of drifting through a load of teenagers kind of coming of age at house parties and gatherings, what we have is one central character played by Andrew Garfield, I think quite brilliantly in this film, playing a sort of vacuous, directionless stoner who's drifting around the city of, I believe, Los Angeles in the movie, trying to piece together clues 
news in a sort of Jeff who lives at home type way where he thinks things might be showing him something from the universe and those things might connect together and if he just follows further down the rabbit hole eventually he's going to come to some kind of understanding or maybe a man at a grand piano who composed all pop music that's ever been composed I mean who knows go along for the ride Andrew Garfield is at his best I think really great in in I mentioned before something like 99 Homes which is one of my favorites with him and this one here um, I think that it's a movie as well a bit like uh, Inherent Vice maybe where it's got this kind of drugged out sense to it so you have to you have to sort of tack on to that almost dream logic of the narrative otherwise you're going to find it frustrating and I think a lot of people did find it frustrating and maybe you're going to find it self-involved I think it's deliberately self-involved yeah to me David Robert Mitchell is a really interesting filmmaker doing interesting things and making three different films that are both incredibly connected to each other and interwoven in the sense in which they are shot and the, the sense in which they are presented but completely disparate in terms of what they're dealing with so this is all sort of conspiracy theories and yeah like I say sort of drug life uh, that in a sense couldn't be further removed from it follows but if you pay attention to what this director's doing I think you'll see that there's a real cohesion to his body of work at this point I think Under the Silver Lake's been massively underrated but then at the same time it's not going to be one of the films that will be universally embraced because of the way in which it takes its time it's very weird there's a lot of strange offbeat encounters uh Riley Keough pops up in this um, and he's really good yeah uh, enjoyed it a lot um I don't know if it would have made your list Paul but uh I think it needs a shout out so it is my number eight no I think I liked it but it was like you said I think I was frustrated in places um I was quite tired when I watched it I, I will admit that as well but I liked it it hasn't made my list but again I know I'm with you for the most part I think it's one of the best Andrew Garfield performances I've seen for a while for sure because I'm not always his biggest fan but uh yeah no I, I enjoyed it enough for sure so no it's a good pick Pete. it's a good pick um that leads me to number seven uh which is a film we reviewed only last week uh which is Noah Baumbach's marriage story um uh, we talked a lot about this last week so I won't I won't labor the point on on why I really liked it um I, I really really enjoyed the writing of this I thought the performances from Scarlett Hansen and Adam Driver were were almost flawless um I found most of it utterly naturalistic and very very convincing some slight issues with with where it was set perhaps and some of the privileges some of the characters that takes detracts slightly from it However, it's one of the handful of films this year that I can genuinely say has moved me to tears. Um, and if a film moves me to tears um, and it's not Six Underground, then it makes my uh, it certainly makes my top ten of the year. So yeah, go back to last week's episode for more thoughts on Marriage Story. I'm not going to talk too much about it because we talked about it last week. But if you haven't seen it yet, it is on Netflix. It's well worth your time and it made me cry. And if a film makes me cry, it's on the list. Yeah, it's an honourable mention for me. I think it came in top. 20 and didn't didn't quite make the 10 but you like anything Noah Baumbach is certainly worth your time and I think it's a good example of his work so for sure and yeah check out our review that we've that we've done on the last episode as well in, in full uh number seven for me is a film that I've only seen in the last few days and it's gone bang straight into my top 10 uh I know that you've seen this one I don't know if it's made your list but I was very impressed this is The Nightingale from director Jennifer Kent who of course it became very well known for the movie Movie, the Babadook and I would say again like I'm building links with David Robert Mitchell's films uh, Jennifer Kent's movies in, in the form of The Babadook and this one have this common thread of being centered on a woman who has been disempowered and is scared and who is trying to put sort of one foot in front of the other and hold herself together and rebuild or at least 
attempt to maintain what's left of her sanity. In the case of the Babadook, this is because of a domestic situation with her child and a haunting, and you've seen that movie, and I'm not talking about that one. But in the case of the Nightingale, you have a very horrible series of events which befall a young woman in uh, rural Australia in when? The 1800s, Paul? 1800s, yeah. It is the 1800s, yeah. Yeah, okay. In the 1800s, in an Australia that is characterised by slave ownership and uh, the power dynamic that exists between the disempowered uh, black uh, Aboriginal slaves and the predominantly white men who control them, and then these military men who decide to use their power to violate the central character in ways that I think have been well documented, and I think maybe what hasn't been as well documented or maybe I haven't seen or maybe people don't want to speak about is the infanticide that takes place during the course of those events uh, which basically leaves a woman who had a small family with none of that family going out on her own across the outback with just one companion who happens to be a an aboriginal black man who himself is disempowered and scared and potentially very very vulnerable and I think what Jennifer Kent does so well is to be absolutely sort of dead-eyed and serious about the material. I think that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of ways in which you could look at something like the Babadook and see here's a person who just knows about sort of um, shocks and scares and timing and 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 sort of horror beats and stuff and all that stuff's true of Jennifer Kent. But this is a director clearly as writer director on this project who has some very very serious points of view and some very serious issues that she foregrounds in her movies and I think in a very elegant, um, controlled way for a director of such limited output at this point. I learned when I was reading about this that actually she wrote to Lars von Trier. Did you know this thing? I didn't know that, no. So so when uh, Lars von Trier was making Dogville, uh, so 2001, 2002, uh, she wrote him a letter at that time as a sort of aspiring filmmaker um, saying the idea of attending film school to her seemed sort of abhorrent and and, and, mm. and unwanted for her but she would like to get experience in the industry and she went and worked as a sort of assistant with Lars von Trier on Dogville I think a, you know like a dog's body uh, forgive the pun uh, a dog's body on that film and that's where she kind of cut her teeth I think in the industry and okay. finally got this short film for the Babadook made into what was the feature that we all came to sort of know and love but yeah, like a major force, I think, has been established. This thing is in like um, Academy Ratio and it looks sort of um, washed out and uh, inc- incredibly fitting for the time in which it takes place. I guess I can't put it better than that. Um, it's, mm. you know, you said when you reviewed it, it's not it's not easy. Obviously, this material's not easy. Read the synopsis and you'll know that this isn't going to be an easy watch by any means. But... Like I say, the themes and how they're developed and how the director has a control of her material and isn't just being exploitative or like wanton with um, violence and and the way it's enacted on people. I mean, yes, there's going to be people who will just get fatigued because this is like a beatdown for a couple of hours. But I think it's, it's worth subjecting yourself to it because you're in safe hands um, when all's said and done. So yeah, I was really impressed by it. The Nightingale is my number seven. 
It jumped in just at number eleven, actually. It very, very came very close to the top ten. But yeah, if there is an, if there is such things as number eleven, that would be my number eleven. I'm with you, Pete. I thought the Nightingale was fantastic, and again, it's you know, is as much a story about the treatment of, of about it's a horror, it's a statement of colonial on colonialism as much as it is a rape revenge film in in the more traditional sense. So yeah, completely yeah. agree. It does deserve yeah. to be there. So uh, well, yeah. just to tag on that though, I think that 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 point is true anyway because colonialism is is you know the occupation of something that isn't yours and that's mm. both the body of this woman and the body of land where the aboriginal yeah. people live so like kent yeah, is sure. very aware of the parallel that she's drawing and i don't mm. think that that's an easy parallel to draw without sort of going awry or maybe seeming like um it, yeah you're trying to too conveniently fit these narrative pieces together but i think she does it really well and and yeah i i so so sort of gripped by this film for all of two and a quarter hours that it runs so that's that's why it made the list so we're up to number six for you right we are up to number six which is your favorite film about wobbly old white men pete this is the uh, latest from martin scorsese this is the irishman fully fully on board with some of the things you said about it as i said i don't feel the same for me it's a return to form for scorsese it's not sometimes there's the odd pacing issue here and there i think there are times when it is the, the film is certainly a touch too long um at three and a half hours i think possibly 10 10 15 minutes could have gone but when it's on form my god is this film on form um when de niro and Pacino are firing all guns blazing at each other I think it's an incredible piece of work uh, Joe Pesci's performance I thought was was almost flawless it's a very very dialed down performance from him we've not seen before uh, I think you mentioned Pete at the time Stephen Graham's great in this for me it's one of the most cinematic films of the year I did manage was lucky enough to see it at the Watershed Cinema so I did see it on a big screen which I think helps um, Scorsese is you know an absolute master of his craft and for me it was just it's nice to see it was nice to see him make something like this again I, I, whether or not he's got another i hope he doesn't necessarily do another gangster film because i can see the criticisms that perhaps this is this is ground he's trodden on before that being said it's ground that he's covered before and he's very good at covering so yeah it demands your patience it demands a big whack of your time but it is for me well worth it because scorsese at his finest is one of our greatest living directors for sure and i stand by the irishman and i i'd really really liked it so yeah that's hence why it sits at my number six of the year yeah and i don't think you're alone i think i'm you know one in a hundred people who, who had anything negative to say about it so yeah i think you <laughs> no s- you're definitely not alone there's a number of people that I've, I've spoken to since that i think a, a guy they came in he was just like fucking i just can't trust netflix with my time anymore <laughs> so yeah uh, a i mean i wouldn't, I I wouldn't like to be like necessarily it. grouped with that guy who sounds like an idiot <laughs> but yeah I, I i've made reasons. him sound like an idiot to be fair like he does listen to the show as well so he's going to know exactly who he is so apologies i'm not going to name you but yeah he didn't moan in that voice but yeah Paul if he listens to this he's all right with me so uh, yeah he's a good lad and I take it back um number six for me another late entry this one available to you for just 99 of your English pence on the Amazon streaming service uh this is the latest from Alex Ross Perry it is her smell Alex Ross Perry is a director that I've admired for a little while from um listen up Philip through Queen of Earth with Elizabeth Moss who reappears here this movie tells the story of a very 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 i can't stress enough very self-destructive rock star in the sort of like courtney love mold 
who at the film's outset is attempting a comeback with her band. They're finishing a tour and they're about to go back into the studio to try and complete an album that they've been working on, we hear, for about seven years. The problem is the person at the centre, the sort of creative centre of gravity, this Elizabeth Moss character, who in the film has a name that I am scrolling towards, uh, Becky something. The group is called Something She, the the group that that she uh, is the lead singer of. She is completely unreliable. She's a danger to herself and others. And what happened with this movie, because it's not long since I've seen it, is it did an amazing job of splitting its being into two very distinct parts. The first half of the movie is all sound and fury and random acts of aggression and violence and drug taking and swirling cameras, handheld footage, disorienting noises. Like a lot of it is just sequences where you can barely hear what people are saying because they're in a rock club where you've got all the sounds from the next room bleeding through the walls. So it makes you uncomfortable, incredibly uncomfortable. Being around this woman is uncomfortable. And Alex Ross Perry is a a director who's dealt a lot with toxic personalities. The Philip character, and listen up, Philip is a sort of insufferable egomaniac who's sort of solipsistic in the extreme and nobody can bear to be around him because he can't see past the end of his own nose. This is territory that is very much stock in trade for the director. But then, at about the halfway mark, something happens, the events build to a crescendo, and our central character comes into a state of um, tranquility a karma state, a sort of recovery state. We've jumped forward a bit in time. And I had heard from other critics and other people who've who've caught up with the film that this was jarring and uneven and maybe um, irritating in that sense. And I don't think that could be further from the truth. This thing very nearly reduced me to tears in one particular number, which is Moss's character and her daughter at a piano. Look out for that one. Have your tissues ready. Um, And it kind of made me think, Paul, of what I liked a lot and then maybe what fell short about the movie Vox Lux, which didn't get too close to my list this year. Of course, in that case, it's Natalie Portman who has her own, um, you know, drug abuse, alcohol abuse issues and sort of big gap, a big gaping gap of nothing inside herself. Um, I think... Moss's performance is stronger and I think that the direction by and large is more effective here than it was there and then around this you've got you know Agnes Dane and Cara Delevingne and Virginia Madsen and all kinds of people popping up yeah yeah loads of people that you'll recognize but I just think this is one that will fly under the radar if I don't draw attention to it Alex Ross Perry's worth your time her smells really good yeah, I, I didn't realize it was ninety nine p on Amazon. I didn't realize it was ninety nine p on Amazon now, so I'll find that post haste. To be fair, because I've been looking out for that one. But in yeah. full high definition, no less, Paul. So yeah, uh, get involved. Good. I've got no excuse then, have I? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We will take a little break so that we can have a little breather, and then we'll be back with our top ten of the year, five to one. Right after this.
Uh, right, number five for me. In I've got a film in the top my top ten of the year that has got an IMDb rating of 4.1 out of 10, Pete. And to this day, I'm still baffled why there is so much hate for this film out there. I think you know what this is, because you know I love this film. Uh, this is Wounds by Babak and Vari. I've said a lot about this film on the show before, so I'll try not to repeat myself. There's a lot There's a lot of criticism about this film, about the story, about the fact it doesn't make very things clear as to what's going on. And yes, all of those things are true. There, This is undoubtedly a vague film there's, there's there's no doubt in that in in the slightest but my word i mean i saw this on a small screen it terrified genuinely terrified me it's got some of the finest scenes of the year in it the the horror elements are fantastic the film from the opening minutes right till the the harrowing harrowing end which kind of is was reminiscent of possession for me had me gripped from start to finish and i you know i'll forgive a lot with horror if a film can build an atmosphere quickly and maintain an atmosphere and I, I don't think and I mean there's been some there's been some big hitting horror films this year from big hitting directors so Ari Aster's Midsummer, certainly atmospheric in parts but for me A Touch Too Long didn't and I'm surprised it isn't on this list if that makes sense and, and Wounds is to an extent there's been some good horror films this year but none that have gripped me as much as Wounds and by gripped me I mean I was completely glued to this film from start to finish and uh, some of the visuals are fantastic and I think Babak Kanvari is an incredible director and I think he gets too much of a hard time for Wounds because I really really like it uh, and that's why Wounds is at my number five of the year. Mm. It gripped you Paul what do you need to grip something Paul you need a hand don't you you need a hand. Number yep. five for me, uh, <laughs> J'ai perdu mon corps, or I lost my body. The story of a hand that has been uh, released from the uh, co- confines of being attached to a body. Although that hand is not particularly happy with that set of circumstances and is making its way across Paris to try and find its original body. Uh, this one we talked about not long ago on the show. I know you've caught up with it as well. It is certainly for me the finest piece of animated work I've seen all year it is uh, heartwarming and sort of heartbreaking it is incredibly well realized in terms of the way that the possibilities of a sort of personified independent hand moving through an environment is really uh, capitalized on I think It, it reminds me of things like how they made a video game called I am bread where you are just a piece of bread, but managed to get something from that that was engaging and entertaining. And I think even more so here with I Lost My Body, that you are, if you're like me, absolutely taken along for the ride and pulled in to what is a pretty moving, central romance story of sorts. And a lot of that pull comes from your being intrigued and fixated on and by a severed hand what an achievement i mean i can't remember something that sounds so abstracted as a sort of center of a movie since that film rubber which is about a tire um so maybe we could do a top five of sort of weird objects that anchor movies at some point in the future but yeah i just well, in fabric we've got on this list true as well. So there you go. Yeah, a, yeah, absolutely true. So yeah, I, I just think the film does so many things right. The, the animation's beautiful. The soundtrack is beautiful. I could listen to it on its own. Jeremy Clapin is the director here. Is not someone whose work I was familiar with before this. This is a film I literally think I saw um, maybe a tweet from Mark Kermode saying something positive about the film and realised that it was available on Netflix straight away. And from that point on, the rest is history. It's made my list at number five. 
it could even be higher. I, I'd love to watch this again as soon as possible, and I'd love to wholeheartedly recommend it to as many people as possible as soon as possible because it, oh, it's a gem. I lost my body. Loved it. It is really good. I would share, share that recommendation. It is, as you say, it's absolutely beautiful, beautifully animated, and yeah, heartfelt. It's a, it's a very, very good film. Talking of very good films, Pete, number four is the favourite for me from Yorgos Lanthimos all the way back on the 1st of January, I believe this released. We talked a bit about this on our top five comedies of the year. Emma Stone is great here. Olivia Coleman is incredible. Rachel Weisz is incredible. Yorgos Lanthimos is incredible. The film looks absolutely beautiful. I think evoking, for me, evokes kind of Barry Lyndon, I think, in places and in, certainly in terms of how it's shot, which is never a bad thing. Lanthimos's grasp of absurdity I think is second to none and his films as we talked about on the, the top five comedies not that many episodes back his films for me are, are all black comedies and this is this is uh, certainly up, up there with the best of his work I think I don't think I've seen a, a film of his look as beautifully shot as, as the favourite does yeah it's absolutely it's absolute farce in places but it's an absolute joy to behold um, and Olivia Coleman totally deserved her Oscar for her work in this it's a superb piece of filmmaking and yeah very much look forward to what Lanthimos has got coming next and that is my number four the favorite yeah that's one of those man I think maybe as a somewhat a byproduct of being released on January the 1st in the UK Mm. over the course of the year it's drifted a little bit on my list and it's ended up not making the cut by just a few places but yeah I I completely agree and and when it came up on the comedies list that we did I think it was quite high on my list too and um, yeah I, I really liked it it's it's not for what it's worth, it's not, as you were mentioning, I think before, maybe it's your favourite, possibly, your yeah, the most movie. Yeah, it's one of my favourites. Yeah, and I would say it's not that for me, but it is really, really good. And actually, when I was looking at um, what films that we could go, my wife and I often have this tradition of going to see two, three, four movies at the cinema on New Year's Day. Last New Year's Day, one of those films was the favourite. This New Year's Day, man, is slim pickings. Whoa. <laughs> We've got, like, cat. You've got Jojo Rabbit, haven't you? That's out. Jojo Rabbit we haven't seen yet, so it could be Jojo Rabbit, yeah. Uh, I've been conscripted to go and see Frozen 2, so I can't get out of that one. Um, I'll see whether I can get out of Cats. But none of those things are the favourites, so um, yeah. yeah. I look back fondly on the last New Year's Day. Something else I look back on fondly, Paul, is a film that I, again, have only very recently caught up with. In fact, I saw this one in the cinema today. And it has made my list at number four. So whether it's recency bias or not, I don't really care because I think it's excellent. This is Little Women. From- oh, now you've made me jealous. Now, now I'm upset that I haven't seen it. Now I knew it would make your list. I knew it. <laughs> it, it it's, <laughs> obviously, this movie from uh, writer, director Greta Gerwig, who is the partner of Noah Baumbach, who's come up in the list already with Marriage Story. And I would contend, for what it's worth, it's not a competition that at least my favourite of the two movies is Little Women. Um, And that's why it's on the list. I mean, that wouldn't make sense otherwise. Yeah, what to say without doing a full review about this. There's a moment in this film where I started thinking there are two actresses here at the absolute height of their power who are going sort of nose for nose in terms of the one who is going to get over the finish line first as best actor on screen in a a movie packed with great actors. And those two actors are Florence Pugh and Saoirse Ronan. I'm not sure yet who won that particular race. (laughs) <laughs> um, it might be it might be Florence Pugh by a nose, but the two performances are 
exceptionally good. Uh, you've also got supporting role here for Laura Dern, who we all know I love very dearly, and I think she's she's really good. Um, Laura Dern also in Marriage Story, which is a strange Gerwig Baumbach universe interconnection uh, there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the movie is from the source material, the novel Little Women, which I've got to be honest, unless I've completely wiped it from memory, I never read. Uh, so I came to this thing relatively blind. And what you've got at the centre is this character, played by Saoirse Ronan, who is looking at the outset of the movie to get her short story published uh, with a publishing house, helmed, of course, by an old, fat, white man. And she is getting a lot of kickback, and he, at the very minimum, wants more sort of juice, more conventional elements, and to cut a load of pages where she's focusing on sort of character development and that kind of boring stuff. Um, and what the film does really effectively then is it sort of jumps back and forth so that Gerwig manages to sketch in the background detail needed to contextualise a sequence that you've just seen. And this is common in modern filmmaking, of course, but I think it's used very elegantly here and judged really well. I mean, the complete polar opposite of the way that kind of technique is used, for example, in The Goldfinch that you talk talked about earlier on. The actresses at the top of their game, I mean... There are moments in this, again, where I almost shed a tear. A particular exchange that takes place between Saoirse Ronan's character, I believe, and her sister. When her sister is, is quite sick, is very moving. A particular line is very moving that I won't spoil now. The whole thing is just one, and I've seen this commented upon by others. It's the kind of film that leaves you, or sort of makes you grin um, involuntarily just sort of smile, not because things are funny, not necessarily because of jokes written as jokes, but just because a film that might sound like a hard sell to some people is a pleasure that washes over you for, for a good couple of hours. What a talent Greta Gerwig is. The fact that we've had Lady Bird and now this, on top of all the work that she's done as an actress and all the highlights that you could find from her back catalogue on that front. What a talent and, you know, more power to her and you know, between her and Baumbach, I'm sure we're going to get incredible work over the next few years. And, you know, long may they produce material because this is really, really good. It is my number four. Nice, nice. I will get to it as soon as I possibly can because I'm very excited about it. My number three um, is also my number was also my number one comedy of the year. This is uh, Olivia Wilde's Booksmart, which I talked a bit about on the top five comedy show. So again, I won't go into too much detail here. But for me, almost the perfect comedy. I've seen it twice now and it stands up. And for me, that is the test of a comedy is when it's if it stands up for multiple viewing. And once again, on second viewing, I have to say I was pretty much belly laughing the entire way through not just not just not just smirking with amusement not just chuckling to myself but belly laughing for most of the film you've talked a bit about this last on the on the top five comedies episode it's so much more than just a gender flip version of super bad the cast are incredible here Caitlin Deaver, Beanie Fieldstein, uh, Billy Lord's ridiculous character. Like all of the sub characters are incredibly well, well written, and it really took this one really took me by surprise. I kind of it took me a while to see this at the cinema, um, and uh, sometimes it's nice to be proven wrong. And my word, did Booksmart prove me wrong? And I think it certainly sets up Olivia Wilde as a talent to watch um, as a director for sure, because this. It, for me, is absolutely one of the year's very best films, if not one of the best comedies of the last five years. I can't speak enough love for Booksmart, so I will stop now, pass, pass it back over to you. But yeah, it's my number three. Yeah, 
this was uh, crowned number one comedy of the year by both you and I. And then I can only explain myself by saying that I am a sort of dour, serious man because somehow <laughs> it's my number one comedy, but it hasn't made my top 10 films overall. I don't know that I, you know, it, it could have slipped into my top 10 quite easily. And there's no slight on my part towards the movie by leaving it off the top 10. There's just an awful lot of movies to consider. Uh, and it didn't. Oh, no, I agree. It's the same thing with me and Nightingale, to be fair. Like, there's, there's some films that, that could have got in, maybe should have got in. But yeah, it is what it is. Ultimately, it's your top 10, isn't it? There's nothing, there's nothing to say. There's nothing to say has to be on your list, but it should have been. <laughs> yeah, so a film that I knew from the moment I'd first seen it was going to be on this top 10 of the year list, and it has in fact remained there, is Holiday from director Isabella Eklov with unbelievably her feature directorial debut we've talked about it on the show in fact we did on the uh, top five of the year to the month of june and the hobbs and shaw review episode we also reviewed holiday so you can go back and find our thoughts on the movie there uh, just to say here like Eckloff has found uh, first of all a, a real strong central performance in um, the actress victoria carmen sonna as this girl who is both in control and completely out of control of what is happening to her. She plays a sort of um, trophy girlfriend who's taken on a trip amongst the very much the haves and the financially well-off in a, I believe, Turkish luxury holiday resort where she is also approached by another man who seems to have sort of more um, wholesome, perhaps, intentions and that doesn't play too well with the guy who essentially views her as his property. It's not just that this movie is all bracing and unsettling in a way that I've not encountered uh, many times in, in recent memory. It, you know, it's stuff like Raw, I guess, because that's come to mind for me recently, had that similar effect of like, oh, this is a new filmmaking talent who's really doing something quite, quite aggressive and quite um, impactful. But it's also the fact that the, the movie is handled with such skill because a bit like mm. you know dealing very loosely with the, the thematic link between this and um, the nightingale you've got a drama that hinges on sexual violence at a certain point in a way that is off-putting and rightfully should be or very off-putting and is difficult to watch and is difficult also as a, a critic or as a viewer of movies and a film lover. Sometimes it's difficult to accept that the director has justified putting you through what they have. And I think the best thing I can say to the credit of Isabella Eckloff is that, again, like Jennifer Kent, she knows what she's doing here and she's not she's not reckless at all or not lacking in sort of mindfulness of the seriousness and gravity of what is at the center of the movie and therefore it allows this film to speak to a number of issues with economic imbalance power dynamics between men and women particularly power dynamics where there is also economic imbalance between men and women and yeah i mean the movie opens with a sort of abstract dance sequence apropos of nothing and so you kind of immediately get the sense that this is something a bit different this isn't a standard movie of this kind if such a thing exists i i was knocked for six by holiday and you know, I'm not going to recommend it to all of my extended family necessarily because of the content here, but 
yeah like a real a real directorial talent uh, here on display and, and like a yet another one i mean man this this these lists are sort of um peppered with great directorial work and and holidays no exception so yeah loved it uh watch it tell people who know what to expect that they should also watch it as well yeah absolutely yes much like nightingale not one not one you can widely recommend to everyone but it is a great film and i think yeah i'm with you pete it was it was a really 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 strong debut um again it was on my list if you look i'm looking at some notes in front of me holiday was on here and then it's been arrowed out but only just so yeah i think it's deserving of a place uh, and i'm glad it's come up on your list to be fair you know so, what yeah. else paul you know that i am not someone you know lacking in self-confidence who necessarily needs validation to be opinionated about things but when I went to the internet having thought wow I'm blown away with this movie I wonder if people are talking about it I found two of my favourite film critics in Wendy Eyed and Hannah McGill both giving this thing glowing reviews and talking about what they saw as yeah. a major talent so yeah I felt fairly vindicated in, in you know that opinion holding that no opinion. and as you should I thought no I'm, I'm totally with you I thought it was I thought it was a great film I thought it was yeah really really strong not as strong though for me Pete is my number two which is a film that you mentioned that you haven't caught up with yet which ah, it's so close between number two and number one and perhaps if I'd seen this Monos uh, a second time this year which I haven't had a chance to do so yet it might have edged to my number one spot because it is nothing short of staggeringly beautiful and I mean staggeringly beautiful Uh, this is directed by a man I was not aware of at all before a man named Alejandro Landes who is a Brazilian director to give you the uh, to give you the IMDB um, synopsis of what Monos is about because this this entertains me Uh, all it merely said it merely says on a remote mountaintop eight kids with guns watch over a hostage and a conscripted milk cow uh, and it just leaves it at that. And in terms of what happens in the story, I will just leave it at that. But yeah, I mean, there's been. A, uh, well, I will go into a little bit more detail. So they're essentially child soldiers um, in the midst of in the midst of a civil war, and it follows them and what they do when they're kind of left to their own devices. Yeah, it's just an, an it's just an incredible piece of work. It's it's so well shot, and like absolutely one of the most beautiful films of the year, with without a shadow of a doubt. The child performances are all brilliant. I don't know whether I don't know much about the background of the cast. To be honest, it's not it's not cast members I've ever seen before. Whether they're professional or non professional actors. I honestly don't know um, and that's what I quite liked about this is I went into this film just hearing hearing the occasional whisper like Monos is supposed to be really good and I'm just like oh my god a cinema showing it and I was not disappointed and I, I won't say too much more without because I don't, really don't want to spoil what happens here because it is worth going in cold to this absolutely but the end for me there's been for me when a film lands the end um, this for me can sort of make or break a four and a half to five star film is how the film ends sometimes and Monos much like The Irishman was one of those few films for me this year that as I was there I was just like right if this film closes on this scene now they've nailed it they've absolutely nailed it and it, and it did and it left me with goosebumps and a film leaves me with goosebumps is going to be high on this list and it just it's such a beautiful film I can't I can't speak highly enough for how well this is shot and just absolutely find this and as I said if I'd watched it a second time it may have may have been number one uh, but yeah Monos absolutely incredible piece of work I don't, don't think it's far off home release so check it out if you can find it uh, number two for me then is is a film that you know uh, you go to a film on on your first wedding anniversary and you think please let this be not bad because I'm sitting in the very cinema (laughs) in which I was wed to my beautiful wife and the film in question that plays out in front of you is a little film called The Farewell which happens to be one of the finest films of the year in my humble opinion Uh, this is a film from writer director Lulu Wang who originally uh, 
presented it, I think, to This American Life as a segment a story for um, publication on national public radio through that program and managed then to get the interest and funding that she needed to make it into a feature film once it had come to some sort of public awareness and thank god for those series of events because you have here this story that manages to be incredibly accessible despite the fact that it's almost well majority of the movie is in uh, mandarin chinese takes place in china amongst a chinese cast uh, one of the people in that cast is, of course, Aquafina, who people will know from Crazy Rich Asians, from her rap career, perhaps, uh, or from various other projects that she's been involved in recently as her profile grows. She's this girl who has basically settled in New York and is very used to urban American life until the point at which she needs to return to China because her grandma is very sick and may not make it very much longer. The family though, being that they are a Chinese family, have a different way of doing things. They can't just say to grandma, we're coming to see you because you might die. In fact, they're gonna keep from her at all costs the fact that she might die. So instead, they arrange a kind of semi-sham wedding between one of Aquafina's character's cousins and his girlfriend that he's only been with for like a matter of about six months in order to get all the family together so that we can all spend time around grandma, make her feel good, thinking maybe that this is the last time that we're gonna spend time together as a family. It moved me to actual tears, Paul Anderson, uh, in the cinema when I saw this thing. Uh, <laughs> there is a bit where Aquafina is walking through the streets of New York towards the end of the movie after returning to New York, not knowing the fate of her grandmother at that moment, where she recalls the Tai Chi practice that she carries out in the movie with her grandmother, that she's shown by her grandmother. And in the middle of the New York street, she stops dead and she makes a noise like, ha! And then across the other side of the world, you almost hear the echo of her grandmother connecting with her through that practice. And we instead get a, a cutaway shot to birds flying out of a tree, which we know in visual cinematic language means somebody dies. But that might not be the case, Paul. You'd have to watch the film to know. Um, the farewell is a treat. And I've got to say before I finish, Probably my favourite scene of the year, apart from the hat-hat sequence in New York City, is a sequence involving spinning a camera and getting hammered at a wedding. And again, uh, see it yourself. Nice. You'll love it. it <laughs> this is tremendous. Also, it's a PG, and Little Women, I think, is a U or a PG. I would not have expected that my end of year 10 would include films that are PG or U-certificated, it does, and they deserve to be there. It's fantastic, really fantastic. Well, I would never have expected that the film sitting at number one on my end of the year list was rated E, which means it's a documentary is sitting at number one on my films of the year, which I I don't think has happened since we've been doing this podcast. But my word, I watched Apollo 11 for the second time the other day, and I, I just love this film. I've got goosebumps now, Pete, just even, even talking to you about how good Apollo 11 is. It is hands down the most exhilarating cinema experience I've had this year and I include 
Endgame on that list. I include Godzilla King of Monsters on that list. I include Hobbs and Shaw on that list. You, you get what I'm saying. I include any big budget, beautiful popcorn film on that list. Apollo 11 is more exciting than I would say all of those films put together. And I just cannot praise this film highly enough for what it manages to do with just archive footage no narrative just patching together voiceover from the actual events itself it's such a clever film todd douglas miller the director here has just done such a good job i mean arguably half the job's done for him because they found this incredible 65 mil large format footage of of the takeoff of the moon landing itself the film opens with this just that you get this incredible sense of scale when they're trundling the space shuttle towards launch they're trundling the, the saturn V rocket towards launch to launch apollo 11 to to the moon it trundles across thing on this huge mechanical tractor thing and you're just like christ this was something else in terms of accomplishment like this was big and i i've never i interstellar i think came came close for me in terms of giving and certainly certain scenes in first man came close to giving me a sense of just what powers needed to get into space, especially back in 1969. But just the shots they've got of the rocket, the fact you see the rocket separate, you look at the way they've pieced together and you look at, I mean, I'm probably as excited about the ingenuity that went into the moon land as I am about the film, but the film does such a good job of just conveying what a Herculean task this actually was. And you, the more you watch this film, the more you sit there and think, you think, oh my God, the amount of things that could have gone wrong with the moon landing and don't and this film does it, it's genuinely one of the most exciting films I've, I've seen I've seen of the year as, as you can tell I'm quite excited talking about it but it does so just by very very clever editing and the editing is is brilliant here the film is yeah absolutely fantastic and by far the most exhilarating thing I've seen on on a screen both on the cinema screen I've now watched it home and got it for Christmas um yeah if they've done a fantastic job technically it's an absolute masterpiece the footage looks fantastic if you get a chance to watch it in 4k find find somewhere to watch it in 4k it's just a, it's incredible accomplishment and yeah and I think may I said Monos may have tipped it might have been the other way around if I'd seen Monos twice because I did love Monos a lot but I haven't I've seen Apollo 11 twice and Apollo 11 just just grabbed me uh, yeah I absolutely loved it all 90 minutes of it just incredible incredible film uh, so if you haven't seen Apollo 11 what are you doing go and see it now <laughs> yeah is it, and that's my best film of 2019 is it streaming at the moment uh, it probably will be up for rent because I bought so I got it on Blu-ray for Christmas, so I imagine yeah. it is it is out in the wild somewhere. So yeah, absolutely check it out. It, it's not a list that we ended up recording just because of lack of time, but I did make a top five docos of the year, and this was in my top five uh, Apollo Eleven because, okay, like good. you say, it's it's a fantastic bit of documentary filmmaking, and anybody's like a passing interest in in space exploration, the space program, like get right on that as as Paul says because yeah, exceptionally well made. What's your number one, Pete? Number one for me, yeah, I think you know, probably you know what it is, because I talked about it a lot on the show already. Uh, number one for me is the latest from director Pedro Almodovar. This is Pain and Glory. Pain and Glory, in, in case you're not aware, is a story of addiction. Um, Antonio Banderas at its centre, an actor who's worked with Almodovar before. And it has a lot of the thematic touchstones that you would expect from Almodovar, particularly things like reverence for the mother figure. Uh, here, the mother figure played by Penelope Cruz uh, in Flashback because the central character is going through a sort of very slow, graceful and artistic downward spiral. Um, he lives in what looks like a designer apartment, but he's developing a drug dependency after a chance uh, drug-taking experiment has, has led him down a dark path. But 
that's not really the reason that this is here. It's not simply a, you know, this is a better a million little pieces or something. It's not simply a story about drug addiction or recovery. Uh, this is like this story that deals with so many things. Um, it's a director, I think, who's looking back uh, and reflecting on his own career and his own life and his own experiences. It's about losses um, and failings of the past and how people, if you're like me, or maybe Pedro, uh, you sort of hang on to, I think this is common, you hang on to the times where you made mistakes, the times where you went left when you should have gone right, uh, you maybe misstepped in some way. It's also a film that cares a lot about the memories of childhood and the things that make things in your childhood stand out. So the strongest smells, the most vivid colours, the most, you know, for good or bad, the most bracing experiences of your childhood that not only live with you for your whole life, but also change and reform who you were going to be as a person. In this case, a particular thing that comes to mind is the the sort of early sexual experiences that you have. And, I, and I'm doing sort of air quotes, which is not helpful in our <laughs> podcast, but because I'm not talking about doing a sex act with someone when you're young. I'm talking about like a thing that triggers in you a feeling that you didn't know you had. Um, there's a sequence here with sketching a young man, which is is just like peak uh, old Madhavar in, in that sense. Yeah, what else? Oh, the, also, and finally, I guess thematically, is the thrill of creation. Although this is a man in Bandera's character who is sort of, uh, yeah, dour, depressed, and seemingly spiralling, he's also a man who is a creator and has been involved in many a creative process in the past. And throughout, we're hoping that he gets that spark back because the director builds this direct parallel between the spark for creativity and the spark to remain alive effectively um, and that's why for me i said my my scene of the year um, might have been a couple of other scenes that i've mentioned it not least in the farewell but i think my actual scene of the year if we're going to nail it down is the sequence that i mentioned before in which uh, banderas is going through a medical procedure and the doctor who knows him personally leans over and asks him about the work that he's just started doing now that he's sort of pulling himself out of a you know sort of drugged out depression he says is it a comedy? Is it a tragedy? Is it a drama? Or something like that. And uh, Bandera's character responds, you never know, as in, you never know as a creator what you're creating, until... And then at that moment, Omodovar cuts to the fireworks going off above his home as a boy. And it's, it's one of those scenes and one of those, like, combination of sort of um, emotions and images that I can't fully expressed without telling people how to think but that moved me in a way that that few scenes have this year um so yeah i just think it's exceptional pedro modavar is one of my favorite film directors and i would say this is right up there in the top two or three films that he has made in his glittering career and that's why it's number one in my list um above all really um so yeah pain and glory number one for me that brings us to the end of the list. Paul, before we sign off for this episode, were there other things, other films uh, that you wanted to mention as a sort of also-ran or a honourable mention in this list? Uh, to be honest, I think most of my honourable mentions you've covered in your list, and it sounds like some quite a lot of the ones <laughs> vice versa, to be fair. So what else jumps out at me? There's not a lot really that... No, do you know what? Off the top of my head, I mean, Midsummer was Midsummer was solid. Um, I thought Midsummer was yeah had had some really really good moments in it and was was a good film, just not quite a great one. 
Yeah, that's probably the only one really that jumps out at me immediately, to be fair. Um, Ones that haven't been mentioned, I think, so far on this episode. One that I caught up with recently that is another film about the sort of um, the creative buds opening for the first time in a person, a little bit like Pain and Glory maybe to a certain extent, is The Souvenir, the Joanna Hogg film that I've just recently seen three or four days ago uh which for me wasn't as effective in that regard as pain and glory but made my top 20 also um bo burnham's feature debut eighth grade is really good if beale street could talk is uh one that we've spoken about on the show but is worth mentioning again barry jenkins being a yeah beale street could talk was great i forgot that release this year actually i had that down in 2018 but it wasn't it came out here a bit early early this year didn't it yeah um additionally what else oh piercing dropped off my list even though i like it very much and it's still streaming on Netflix uh, Atlantic's also on Netflix the Matty Diop thing uh, I think people should check out uh, Charlotte Rampling in, in Hannah was really good if not good enough to make the film onto the top 10 list uh, Madeline's Madeline which is early in the year but really good uh, Us we haven't mentioned Knives Out we haven't mentioned Support the Girls uh, is really good the Bajowski movie uh, Vox Lux got a mention earlier on I guess Hustlers which I feel like a lot of people have maybe overpraised but was certainly a, a su- surprisingly I, good do you know what? I'm t- totally with you on that I, I think there's there's a number of films this year the, well, the one that jumps to mind is Hustlers that I think a lot of people have, have overpraised for sure Like I like Hustlers enough I, I had a good time with it but I, I'm not getting the hype I've seen it on some best of the year lists mm. and I'm not I don't get why it's there to be honest um, but Capernaum yeah. um, I think dropped off my list just Border is very very good which I think you said you hadn't got to yet so yeah. that's, that's well worth checking out I really like those two um, so yeah those those there's probably others as the, well, well there's there, there's a big sort of elephant in the room that neither of us put on the list and I don't think either of us probably considered that hard uh, which is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood um, which the Tarantino film that of course we reviewed at length on the show go back to that episode and you can probably hear why we maybe weren't mad for it um, there's a lot to like in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and I know that a lot of people like it an awful lot more than me and, and perhaps you as well Paul but definitely a major release this year just not one that grabbed me as a sort of top 10 i think if you know from a technical perspective there's yeah there's a lot to like we didn't like it i I think it's fair to say (laughs) um but yeah and that is that has appeared on a number of lists yeah and joker's appeared on a lot of people's lists as well which i i flat out disagree with i don't understand that's another film that's why i was thinking maybe the year of films that i've perhaps considered to be overrated Mm. so yeah once upon a time in hollywood joker and hustlers certainly certainly sit on that list i think my favorite of those three would certainly be hustlers um but the other two i I don't get the hype and you know that's that's why we discuss films i guess that's the fun of it uh but yeah i don't i don't get the hype for joker and once upon a time in hollywood at all really apart from the fact once upon a time in hollywood is very very well made um, but Joker, I don't get it. Yeah, some great scenes in that movie. I mean, there are some individual scenes I like a lot. One that I think is underrated and underseen is Julius Ona's movie uh, Loose, which I talked about a little while ago, as in L-U-C-E. Mm. And I think it's one of those, just check it out, just give it the time of day. It doesn't mean it's going to be your favourite of the year, but I think it's a really well-made and actually a lot more sort of intelligent and interesting than it's been given credit for by a lot of people. So yeah, there's loads. We could go on forever, uh, but we won't because we've come to the end of our top 10 
of the year. And Paul, as you said at the outset, I think this is the last episode of 2019. Uh, I'd be very surprised if we squeeze another one in between now and tomorrow. So uh, yeah, I think think you might be right. Uh, We'll be back at some point next week, I think. I'm going to put you on the spot now, Pete. At some point next week with our most anticipated of 2020. I think that's a good way to open the year. Uh, Quite looking forward to that because it also gives me a better idea of what's coming out. Um, So because at the moment I know there's some, I know some of the big hitters, some of the big blockbusters, but in terms of some of the perhaps more interesting and my some of sometimes my preferred director's work i have very little idea of what's coming up next year so that's always fun um but yeah that brings us to the end of the year so thanks for listening this year uh if you've enjoyed the show obviously share it like us on all the social medias uh we can find us at stranger cinema on twitter stranger cinema on facebook and instagram uh but yeah from me uh, happy new year everyone happy new year